The following podcast is an Embassy Row production. Hi, everyone. I'm Nikeo Grieco. I'm the founder of Nikeo Beauty and the co-founder of 13 Loon. I'm Melissa Magsese. I'm a journalist and author focused on inclusivity in fashion and beauty. This is The Beauty Vanguard, a podcast focused on the beauty of inclusion. It's our first episode. We're live. And we have a lot to talk about because as we started planning and producing and thinking about what it would be, it's obviously already evolved into something cooler and more than I could have imagined from absolutely coming from a place of science, talking to amazing derms and inequities in dermatology and medicine and accessibility and things that different communities, especially communities of color, things that uh, affect them and us and how that all trickles into beauty. Right. Like it's not to be discounted how beauty can be so influential in so many different ways. Absolutely. And beauty is universal. And I think that's what I'm loving the most about coming together with you to do this podcast and all of our amazing guests that we've interviewed so far is that, you know, coming out of a really kind of hard time of 2020 and and sort of slowly re-emerging back into what our new normal is and really coming from a place of grief and now launching into this place of purpose and fun and beauty is fun. And it's been such an incredible journey thus far, even though we're just getting started to learn about what beauty means to so many others, more than just the beautiful products that we we get to talk about, that we get to use. And, and I'm just really excited that people are going to get to know these incredible guests in a whole new way. And even on just like a very basic but not basic level, like the amount of people that I've talked to in the past week who are so excited to wear lipstick and like get out Mm -hmm. all their glosses and whatever it is in the lower face region that they're like start paying attention to their chin (laughs) i was talking to a derm that i i went to go see last week it was the day that the mask mandate lifted in california and she's like oh no it's huge like it was just slammed with people and she's like it's full-on like lip injections. She's like, people were coming anyway, but she's like, now it's like the lower half of the face is like full (laughs) on (laughs) because people are like, I'm never going to neglect the lower half of my face again. I'm excited to rock some lipstick and and pay attention to the lower half of my face in a new way. Mm -hmm. I'm just excited to, to share all of these experiences and I am so thrilled because our very first guest has been someone I have looked up to since day one of my beauty journey, creating a beauty brand. And Miss Lisa Price from Carol's Daughter is not only an inspiration to to myself, to Melissa, and so many of you that are listening, but, but to so many others. She has been quite a vocal force in what was a really tumultuous year for us all, but she always held the space for hope. She's also a big fan of Prince, which Melissa and I are too. Her love runs deep. It's why we named this episode Lisa Price and the Revolution, because she's (laughs) her own revolution, just like Prince. Let's do this thing. Lisa Price's story is remarkable enough to be legendary, inspiring endless amounts of everyday entrepreneurs, both within beauty and beyond, but especially for women of color. Lisa's journey and passion-filled approach to building her beauty empire, Carol's Daughter, has been a revelation. From starting the line in her kitchen to growing a multi-million dollar business, Lisa's path has not been without challenges, but each step has strengthened the scores of women she inspires to strive for success over the past two decades and still very much today. Welcome to the Beauty Vanguard, Lisa. Thank you. Lisa, you have clearly been a beauty pioneer in many ways, but we'd love to know from you about your background, your earliest memories before beauty was your business. (laughs) What has your beauty journey been like growing up, your earliest influences and experiences that has shaped your view and ideals about beauty? I definitely would have to say that it comes from fragrance. That is the first 
beauty product that I was ever attracted to. And that came as early as age five. Uh, my grandmother's Chanel number no. five on her dresser that she only wore when she went to church on Sundays. And I would always say to her, Nana, this smells so pretty. You should wear it every day. Wearing mm. <laughs> perfume on Sunday. And I have been attracted to scent ever since then. There, when friends would, you know, save up their allowances and talk about the clothes that they wanted to buy. I I wasn't as interested. Um, I didn't really get interested into fashion until much later. I was more interested in scent. I encountered a woman when I was 13 years old. I was a companion for a younger child for the summer. And this child's uncle's girlfriend was a flight attendant. And she always smelled so pretty. And I didn't know Mm. what she was wearing. And it was a fragrance called White Shoulders by Evian. And it's a floral. I know it has jasmine. It has honeysuckle. And she actually spilled the bottle in her purse. So everything in her purse just smelled like white shoulders. And we were at an amusement park and she gave me $20 to spend in the amusement park. So I'm 13 years old. This is 1970 something. $20 was a lot of money. Yeah. gave you $5. That was a lot of money. $20 was like getting a hundred dollar bill. I right. didn't that $20 until it stopped smelling like white shoulders. <gasps> I and love I, that. I wanted to buy my own bottle of white shoulders. Mm. Oh my God. I love that. It, the bill itself smelled like white shoulders. Yeah. That's wow. amazing. That's like poetic because scent put you on your journey to then become a business, which of course money's involved in, in all aspects and is right. very, very symbolic. Wow. It is. It's a full circle moment. Another connection. So I'm a huge Prince fan, like a little over the top. And <laughs> I read an article about him years ago that he has had a fragrance like tray on top of his bureau and he Mm. would blend different scents on his body and sort of like create his own combinations. And then also rumored that he put Chanel number five inside of his boots so that whenever he took them off, if there was company, when he took them off, he never had to worry about his feet stinking because he oh my God. five in his boots. And this idea of combining scents to create a unique fragrance experience, mm-hmm. I was just all over that. And I yeah. did for myself personally for a very long time. And that art of blending fragrances helped me when I began to make products and I would start to blend the scents that I would put into my products. And I'm still so amazing. fragrance whore today. <laughs> Are you still like, because I remember when I was really little, heavier fr- scents like fracas and, and, you know, Charlie and all those scents that you smelled from your mother, or your grandmother, or these older mm-hmm. women in your life. I could tolerate them, but today I can't really, I mean, you know, as, as I'm not as much like, I can't take as heavy as a floral. Are you still loving like a white shoulders, heavier Chanel number five blend or? Yes and no, because sometimes, well, Chanel number five, I do still love just all by itself, but I sometimes blend it. So I Mm -hmm. might with, there's a Creed scent that I have that has violet in And I'll blend it with that. And fracas, I actually like to blend with carnal flour. Mm, That's interesting. Oh, I bet that smells good. Very heavy with the tuberose. So it really depends on the season and my mood. You know, sometimes I'm like very single, like I just want lavender. I just want cucumber. And then other times I want to be complex and I just layer Mm -hmm. a bunch of I, I fall into ouds for a while and then mm. every, white florals. My, my fragrance is like part of my clothing and it helps me when I need confidence, when I need to relax. Right. Fragrance just takes me to different places. That's so beautiful. It is such a sensory experience and it, and it does kind of transport us. Like just listening to you, I'm thinking about like my mom wore beautiful 
Um, when I was growing up, that was her favorite fragrance. And when I saved all my money, I too was a fragrance fanatic. And I went to Dallas. I grew up in Oklahoma and we'd go to Dallas to go to the bigger department stores. And, and I bought Kelka Fleur with my own money. And mm. I mean, was just blown yeah. away. But like as a teenager, like a young teenager that I was into this, like such a heavy floral, scent and you know I too I have a fragrance organ I love to blend fragrances I love to make fragrances for other people and and it really is um when you think about those single note experiences like fresh cut grass or or things it'll it'll literally transport you to times in childhood or times where I would go to Kenya with my parents like certain uh, fragrances and smells will will take me right back there so I I love that that is that is at the core of your of your beauty journey and inspiration and and the products that you then went on to create that we all have gotten the pleasure of enjoying and and being on this journey with you are so sensory driven from a scent perspective so i love to hear how it all started so much and you know going back you know how did that experience then take you to to carol's daughter Obviously, I know a little bit about the story, but I'd love for our listeners to hear it straight from you. Well, I started with making a lotion or moisturizer because it was not very lotiony. It was more buttery for myself. I've always had dry skin and growing up and then even in young adulthood, the products that we have available today and the access to ingredients that we have today just didn't exist then. Yeah. You know, Lubriderm lotion might be as good as it would get. And and if you uh, travel to a Kiehl's boutique somewhere, you know, creme de la creme, but it wasn't enough. I needed more butters and oils in my moisturizers and I read the back of a bottle and thought, well, I can get this. I can find that. Maybe there's a way that I can make it myself. I don't really know what I was thinking, but I said, what the heck, I'll try. And I started out with oils at first, but I really didn't know how to melt and add things to it. And I found a book about essential oils. And in this book on essential oils, there were some very rudimentary, very basic recipes on how to make a balm, a salve, a pomade. So I kind of manipulated those recipes because they used ingredients like lanolin. And I didn't like the way that lanolin smelled. So I said, I'll just try beeswax and I won't put the lanolin in it. And I played around with the recipes and, you know, sometimes they came out good. Sometimes they didn't. But even when they they would separate and things like that, it was more moisturizing than anything I had used before. So Mm -hmm. I kind of approached it like I was cooking food, like I'm going to work on this recipe and I'm going to keep tweaking it until I get it right. And I wrote down what I would do so that I would know, oh, there's too much wax in this one because it was really hard or too much water because the water separated. And I probably played around with those recipes for about two or three years until I finally figured out the right amounts and when to whip it and how long it should cool and all that kind of stuff. And I started to make butters for friends and family. And my mother said to me one day, she said, you know, St. Mary's is going to have a flea market in two weeks. You should sell the butters at the flea market. And I was like, mommy, you think people would buy them like for real? And she said, yeah, they're really good. They're good moisturizers. You should, you should try it. Just take them out there and see. And she came up with this idea for me to put them in baby food jars. She had just adopted my baby sister. So she had baby food jars in her house in the recycle bin. So we took the baby food jars Mm -hmm. and we boiled Mm -hmm. them like to sterilize them. And I made my own labels and I took them out to sell at that flea market, May 25th, 1993. And I sold out. And I was like, maybe I'm onto something, but that's how it started with a body moisturizer. That's amazing. Congratulations. Um, And when you launched, what did beauty retail look like for black founders? And, you know, has it changed significantly in your eyes? And, (laughs) um, you know, it's interesting because I launched Nikeo Beauty in August of 2002. And, and when I launched 
my skincare brand based on family beauty secrets. And I was going out and meeting with retailers. You were the only for me, right? You were the North star. You were the, you were the one that showed me that I could do it and, and gave me the confidence to believe that people would believe me or believe that even if they didn't look like me, they could buy my product. So you were a huge inspiration to me. So I'm curious to hear what it looked like for you when you launched and if you think it's changed significantly and if so, how? It's changed a lot. When I first launched the brand, I did not launch the brand with retail in mind. I launched it with maybe this can be the job that I have that I can do at home whenever my husband and I decide to have children because both of us worked in television and film production. So we worked really long hours and I didn't see how it would work because even though we worked really long hours, we really didn't make a ton of money to say, oh, well, we'll just hire a nanny to help us with whatever children we have. So this idea of work that I could do from home was kind of interesting to me. Still contribute to the household, but I wouldn't have to pay somebody a ton of money to watch our kids whenever we had them. So I started out with, you know, selling out of my home, then eventually having a store, selling on a website. When I met my business partner, my first business partner, we're we're not partners anymore, but back then when I met him, he had the idea for expansion and that this product should be available in more places. He was, he was stunned that I was working out of my home, selling out of this one store in Brooklyn. And I had some wholesale accounts with boutiques and salons, but not retail chains. And I was able to make over $2 million a year with no PR Mm -hmm. firm, very small bank loan, you know, no real investment. So, you know, he was like, this can really be something. And when he had the initial conversations with retailers, big box retailers were really only interested in Mm -hmm. whatever women used when they did relaxers. That was Mm -hmm. it. And our price points were too high. They just didn't see how it would work in their environment. So then the idea became, (laughs) well, then we need to be in a prestige store and it needs to be a place like Sephora or maybe department stores. And he had the idea of bringing celebrity investors into the company and having the cachet of those people help to uplift the brand and make the brand look attractive to people, but mostly to garner press for the brand. And when we did that, we found, you know, I I would not have known this as these are things in retrospect. So it's not as if, you know, I had this like, wild idea and wow, look, it worked. But what we learned in retrospect was the retailers were interested in how do we bring this consumer into our store and cater to her, but they didn't know exactly how to achieve that because they never really thought about it before and other brands weren't doing it. So It, it, it was almost like this assumption that we all shop at the drugstore and we somehow f- magically find what we need because we're not complaining about it. It must be OK. But there was still this like, how come we don't have more of this demographic in our store? And so when they saw, you know, who was behind the brand and who, because they were investors, were serving as spokes beauties for the brand, they were intrigued and interested and brought us in. And we went into Sephora Mm. first and then we went into Macy's, Mm. you know, but over the years, you know, that was, we launched in Sephora in 2006 over the year. There's so many things that have changed with this consumer. She doesn't relax her hair the way that she used to. At that time, it was 90% of African-American women who relaxed their hair that number is below 30 today. So it's a completely Mm -hmm. different market. 
you know, the mass environment target specifically mm-hmm. was the first to do it, elevated the look of the of the ethnic aisle. And it's now multicultural beauty. There are more brands. There's more selection. You know, we're we're not fighting the way that we were back in the day to be in mainstream magazines. You know, the only reason that I got into Vogue is because Jada Pinkett Smith did an article and took a photo <laughs> and talked about the brand amongst other things, you know? Um, so it was that leveraging of, you know, these powerful ple- people that we had behind the brand that enabled us to get press initially and get into books that typically didn't look at our consumer. And today that's just so much different. You know, if you look at, if you took a swath of magazine covers in 1993, the top mm-hmm. magazines, very, very white. You look yeah. at it today, it's it's not the same. So it's it's a very different market. And it's even more different as a result of last year and mm-hmm. the social unrest following Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, yeah. where yeah. now, you know, the, the onion's been peeled back, the covers are ripped off. Y'all can't look away anymore. Right. Just, There's no tr- turning back. There's no, no tr- going backwards. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, that's how we were born, how 13 Loon, my second business, was born out of the summer of 2020. And and you, like myself and so many other founders, were showing up on all the lists, you know, top Black-owned, Black-founded brands to watch, to follow. I think you and I had a similar experience, which was somewhat, I know, at least for me, very heartbreaking, where when some of these lists were coming out and people would say, oh... That's not black owned. Nikeo is owned by Unilever, right? And and people not really knowing what to do with all of our pain, right? And not knowing where to put it, where to put our anger, where to put our sadness. And in that moment, for me as a founder, thinking about how I wanted to take this pain and turn it into purpose, it was to shop the list and to share our stories. And that even though I mean, you know, with the Nikeo brand, I've had so many stops and starts and good money, bad money, good partners, bad partners. I mean, it has been a journey, right? But it's still how I pay my bills, how I feed my family. And it's more than a brand. And and that's how 13 Loon was born. It was like looking at these lists and thinking to myself, A, I can't believe I've been a black beauty founder for almost two decades, and I haven't heard of some of these incredibly beautiful brands. Two, how is it that there's a few of us at this retailer and there's a few of us at this retailer and in 2020, and the majority of these lists were either direct-to-consumer with not much visibility at all, and while we were seeing great initiatives like Aurora developing the 15% pledge, in my mind, I was like, well, you should take way more than 15% of us. Mm -hmm. Like, How about we flip the script and say we're taking 90% and only 10% will be non-Black or Brown owned. And that's going to be to foster allyship. And so that's how it was born. But even during that time, like looking at at your journey and and hearing 1995, I felt like the only outside of you in 2002. And so, yes, I see a significant difference, but I still see that there's so much more work to do. And to your point, yeah, the train has left the station. Like we're hoping that with our model at 13 Loon of, of 90-10 and this 90-10 rule, that we're going to help other industries to say, wow, this could be a successful business, having 90% of our of our creatives being people of color, selling to people of all colors. And I don't think if it wasn't for being able to to witness your journey from afar and and cheer you on. I remember when your products were first talked about on the Oprah show and then seeing you on Oprah and like just being so inspired that this was possible. And yeah. and I know that you still do that for so many of our young brands on 13 Moons. So they're going to be so thrilled to to hear <laughs> your story. I think it's really important to be able to see something if you want to be something. Mm-hmm. And so often women, women of color and black women, we have to imagine it because mm-hmm. we don't always get to see it. Right. And in imagining, you make mistakes because you don't have somebody that you can look to before and see, oh, she did this and he did this, he did that. I'm going to avoid that. You, you know, there's no blueprint. There isn't anything to follow. So you just kind mm-hmm. of figure it out as you go along. Right. 
So I love that I'm able to be that for other people because when I was doing it, it was very hard. And I love that other people also help me because as I watch new people do it and new brands, it's an interesting feeling. Like I remember explaining shea butter to people right. when they call it Shia right. and they didn't understand it. And, oh, it stinks and it's too sticky and that's disgusting, you know? And you're like, Ugh. wait, wait, listen, listen. Right. And now people are like buying it on Amazon and doing DIY in their kitchen. <laughs> Right. You've had such an incredible journey, obviously, and overcome, you know, like you said, navigating this when you, you aren't seeing somebody doing it starts and stops. What has been the biggest win for you thus far? And what would you say has been the biggest challenge? If I answer it from the perspective of business, the biggest win is taking the brand through the process that it needed to go through to be in a place where it was attractive to be acquired because there was a lot of up and down and, you know, we got investment just before the recession hit. So then all of the like big plans that you have after you get a a sizable investment gets Mm -hmm. put on hold because no one is shopping and Mm -hmm. then navigating the afterlife of the recession, you know, it was, it was not an easy financial story to tell. So it took a lot of rigorous and strategic work to be able to build that three-year plan to say, Mm -hmm. this is, this is who we were three years ago, and this is who we are today. And we should be something that's a part of your world. But if I look at it from a personal perspective, which in some ways feels greater to me, My biggest obstacle was my own doubts about myself, my own fears about what I could and couldn't do. Can I speak up? Can I have a voice in this room? Are people going to listen to me? Do I really know exactly what I'm talking about? I don't completely understand all of the financial documents. So should I be talking about this particular topic? And, you know, finding that voice and overcoming the fear of not speaking and being comfortable asking questions. Mm. So the the person that I've grown into as a result of being an entrepreneur, I just don't know how she ever would have been uncovered. So if she being me was my obstacle, but then she being me who I am today is also like the biggest win. Cause I just, I just don't know how I would have gotten here if I just had a job or a career. I don't know mm-hmm. if it would have pushed me into so many uncomfortable situations that I mm-hmm. had to learn how to overcome. Wow. That's beautiful. That is really, really beautiful, beautiful and so important because now with social media and sort of this culture that we've all, that's really come up through the past five or six years of, you know, girl boss and boss bitch and boss babe, like always Mm -hmm. tend to see is, you know, which is great, you know, as women, we're just plowing through and, you know, just taking names and pushing down barriers, which we are in, in a lot of ways, but I think it's important to leave room for that very, very real sense of doubt. A lot of us suffer from like imposter syndrome, you know, it's, it's culturally ingrained and for us to really push through it and, and grow from it like you did, it's so important to hear from really successful people like yourself that, that are sharing those moments, you know, because mm-hmm. those people who are just starting or in the middle of their journey or, or going through those, especially after COVID, I'm sure there's a lot of new businesses who are, you know, going through kind of what you went through during the recession. Maybe they had just started their company or they were finally at a point where financially, right. There was some traction and then COVID hit. And it's like, how do you explain that? How do you grow from that? Mm -hmm. And it's not just about the bottom line. It's about how, what you're doing inside to ask those hard questions, not just of your team, but of yourself and get through it. So that honesty is so crucial. Thank you. So true. And so, yeah. And that self-discovery is not for the faint of heart. (laughs) It is not easy. (laughs) You know, my mom would say to me all the time when I would be in tears, 
being a founder and, and having all the feelings of, you know, I don't even, I don't know. I don't even understand. I don't know what's happening. I don't know. I don't know what to do. And she would say, um, being an entrepreneur is not for the faint of heart. You know, who wouldn't want to be their own boss, but you're signing up for a lot more than that. And I do think that part of the self-discovery and I'm so inspired by what you said is also an important thing to think about, especially in days like today where it is so much bigger than, than skin, than hair, than even us that we could imagine that it's really about how is it that the roles that we found or the journey that found us is really leading us to serve the collective, right? It's yes, we get to do it through the lens of beauty and, and, family beauty secrets and all of these things that are fun and and great to share. But it really is about living this purpose-driven life of how am I serving the collective? And Mm -hmm. Melissa, in the, in the writing that you do and Lisa, everything that you've created, what we're, you know, co-creating at 13 Loon, it's, it is, it's like, oh, it's, it's about the collective. And in some ways that really helps you to kind of get out of your own way. And, and let your ego, you know, take a seat at the door because, you know, the job is so much bigger than we could ever possibly have imagined. And, you know, we carry these, you know, 90% of our brands are black and brown founded owned brands. And our founders are some incredible people with some really rich history and some of whom are just starting out on their journey and they love to be inspired. And so we always, as a special treat, with some of our special guests, we allow um, our founders to submit questions. So if you would be open, I would love to share a question from one of our founders who has a brand called Naturally Drenched, which is an incredible line of vegan hair care for curly and textured hair, founded by Jamila Powell. Uh-huh. So would you be open to Jamila's question for you? Sure, sure. So she wants to know, How do you decide when to create a new product and what are some of your favorite ingredients to use? So when to create a new product is a different process today when you're a part of a really big company like L'Oreal and you have much more process that you have to go through (laughs) and We did rigorous testing before the acquisition, but it's even heightened since um, the acquisition. So there is less gut and fun to, even though it it is still fun, but when you're smaller, you can literally wake up and say, you know what, I really want to do something with pineapples and like hair care. Summer is coming. I, I just I just think that would be so much fun. Like come up with this whole thing in your head. And as long as you can meet your minimum requirements with your subcontractor who's making them, if you're not making them yourself, it is less expensive to sort of test and learn and play around. Mm-hmm. And you might decide limited edition. I'm doing pineapple milk this summer. And let's see how it goes. And then people are like, yeah, it was okay. So you don't bring it back. Or they say, Mm -hmm. oh, where's the pineapple milk? And you're like, well, it's December. No, no, I want the pineapple milk. And then you can bring it back. But Mm -hmm. today, being part of a bigger company, I kind of have to do all of that work first with, you know, I may come up with the whimsical idea of pineapple milk, Mm -hmm. but then can pineapple milk sell all year long What's the best retailer for pineapple milk? What benefits can I attach to the pineapple? Are there really any hair benefits from a pineapple or is it all the smell? So there's more questions that I have to ask today because it's not the same nimble that you have when you're indie and smaller. So I say all of that to say, enjoy being indie and smaller and being nimble and do all of your tests and learns because it gives you so much more information should you ever decide to become part of a bigger group to just know that you've tried these different combinations and to know what works and what doesn't work. But I think when you allow yourself to just be creative, but then you combine it with the research that you do on the ingredients Um, the history of an ingredient. Does the ingredient have a story that somehow ties into your brand? Like we have a line called Minoy um, based on Minoy oil from French Polynesia. 
part of Minoy's story is the handing down of the recipe of Minoy within families from mother to daughter. It passes from the mamas in, in the village, in the family, in the community. Everybody has their own little spin on how they make Minoy. So that history and story of Minoy does kind of dovetail into what Carol's daughter is about. So it makes sense and, and it doesn't become a forced conversation. It's very hard for me to sell. You know, mm-hmm. I need to storytell. And so I have to make connections. Um, other people who are very, very good at selling may not have to make those same connections. They just need to be able to back up the words that they're saying. So the research that you do on ingredients is really critical for either the story or because there's some sort of scientific benefit to it. Yeah, that's, that's a great answer. Putting that on a T-shirt right now, it's hard for me to sell. I need to story tell. That's literally my new motto. Yeah. Cause when I think about selling, like, you know, obviously it's a goal if it, if you have a brand, but I, I just love coming at it from that authentic storytelling place and having the ingredients really speak to you is what is one of your, is pineapple or Manoy one of your favorite ingredient, favorite ingredients to use? I really do love Minoy, but I think my favorite ingredient is cocoa butter. I love cocoa butter. <laughs> oh my love goodness. It so much. Love Raw, it so much. melted. <laughs> yep. I don't like it deodorized. I want right. it to smell like brownies in the kitchen when I'm melting mm-hmm. cocoa butter. Mm-hmm. Love, 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 love cocoa butter so much. Me too. Yeah. And it is really fun too. I think, you know, when you're seen as like a clean or a natural beauty founder, I mean, mind you, when Lisa and I launched our brands back in the day, nobody was calling it clean beauty, right? It was just using things that came from the earth that were good for your skin, that had a great, you know, authentic mm-hmm. storytelling aspect had been used, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's really interesting when we talk about this a lot with our founders at 13 Loon, um, you know, so many of these ingredients have been really sourced and, and appropriated from marginalized places around the world for centuries, mm-hmm. right? And now some of the biggest brands that we see in the marketplace are based off of like African ingredients like marula oil or, totally. you know, so there's also a certain power in kind of taking back the the kind of ownership of the, the authentic stories. And, and mm-hmm. I think that happens a lot in our, in our POC brand, but I love that idea of, of storytelling more than selling because I'm a storyteller and, and, and selling is very hard for me. You know, I want to actually just like give it to everyone for them to try, <laughs> you know, and, and, um, I'm, I'm and when we talk that. about like ingredients, it's also really empowering and liberating now that those of us that were like natural, clean brands can talk about ingredients like squalene and feel uh-huh. empowered by it or niacinamide, another great ingredient that I've fallen in love with. And, and to be able to speak to nature meeting science, as opposed to being like, you're over there in the nature category. And this is where the yeah. scientists are with the Derm brands, like that. Now we can actually speak to these incredible ingredients that have been used mm-hmm. for thousands of years and marry them with these amazing scientific ingredients that help to deliver, you know, these efficacious results. And, and that is growth too, right. I think as, as, as founders who started in, in kind of this lane to, to be able to really play in these, in these areas with these great ingredients and have that discovery be an authentic discovery as well. I I have Mm. an interesting uh, thing happen. It started before quarantine, but it just got more intense during quarantine. So it might be about three to four years now. I always create a gift for the holidays. So I have a Christmas list that have like private lists with friends and family. And then there's different associates and people that have helped me throughout the years of building the business. And then you have like beauty editors and stuff that you want to throw in there and just be nice to them. And it's a, it's a company thing and a personal thing and everything comes from Lisa's kitchen. And so many times people think it's a brand when they get their holiday box, they're, they're like Googling Lisa's kitchen because their gift ran out and they want to buy some more. And I'm like, no, it's not a brand, it's gift. But (laughs) something so empowering in the thing that I, that I used to do in order to help pay bills and make money and meet payroll and pay the rent and all that kind of stuff. Like you produced to sell. Mm-hmm. To be in the position where I can produce to give, I never knew what that would feel like. 
It, mm-hmm. it wasn't even something that I thought about. And it is so glorious mm-hmm. to just, you know, like somebody will text me and, and they'll say, you know, I noticed that you don't have scar butter on the website anymore. Do you still make that? And I'm like, yeah, no, we don't sell it, but I still make it because I use it, you know, on my family. And I'm like, do you, do you want some? And they're like, can I get some? You know? <laughs> and then I'll make like a small little batch that weekend and ship out a jar. And they're like, what do I owe you? And I'm like, you don't owe me anything. Just use no. scar butter. So, but there's something so like great about that. Like it feels so good to yeah. just give it away. Yeah. Um, and, to, you know, like to practice the craft, but not have to rely on it. Food, And mm-hmm. I can just share it. And when the quarantine first happened, I reached out to like all of my Brooklyn friends because I think my anxiety had me just in the kitchen, just making stuff because I just needed to do something with the energy. And I sent out messages to people and I was like, I know you're washing your hands 90,000 times a day. You know, I had like special Florida water batches that I made and butters and moisturizers and bath salts, like things to help people stay sane. And I, the care packages and just put them outside the door. Like people would text me, I'm outside. Okay. Go around <laughs> by the, the red can. It's, there's a bag, right? There. <laughs> you know? I love and that. Amazing. It was so good to just do something with that energy. Absolutely. I love that. I did that too. I made um, little Mason jars of coffee scrub for people to keep by their sink. Cause we don't carry the, the body scrub that I started my brand with anymore in the Nikkei right. line. So it's same. It was so fun to like teach my daughter how to make it and, yeah. and do the same, give it to neighbors and, and people around. And it, it also helped with that, you know, because that period last summer when they're making the lists, you know, like I was mm-hmm. on not black owned list, you know, like the brands you thought were black owned, like Ugh. hoodwink people, you know? And then there was one where there's a picture of a white woman on one side of the meme and it says the owner. And then there's a picture of my line on the other side and it says the brand. And oh everybody at L'Oreal was like, who is this chick? Does anybody know who this is? And it took like a week and a half for somebody to finally tell us like, who was this woman that they right. put into? But it was so maddening because the line that they featured on the other side of the meme was our Coco Creme line. And Coco Creme was created by me and a young woman who worked in the marketing department, a Black woman. Um, She works at Unilever now. She was so passionate about this line. We worked on it together. We researched it together. We worked with the labs, the ingredients, the lusciousness. And I'm like, you think that this is this person's work, but it's two black women that did this just because mm-hmm. the brand is not owned by me anymore. It doesn't mean that I'm still not at its core. You right. know? That it wasn't born out of you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I found that that might've been probably the most heartbreaking for me last summer was, were those moments where, yeah. you know, it's like, you don't, you don't know my story. You don't know. Yeah where and how and how hard I work to get to where I am and, and all the wins and tears. Yeah. And that I'm still working so hard that there's no guarantee that once you, you are acquired by these big companies, that that just means that you're, you know, living in massive success. Like there's still so much that goes into, Mm. but at the end of the day that these brands are born out of real people and real storytellers and real souls and real family lineage. And it's not meant to be memed about or discredited for, for the work and passion and, and, and love that went into it, you know, but I, I also, you know, we talked to our founders about some may choose to be acquired given the opportunity. Some may choose to build generational wealth and, and, and just pass it down to their kids and keep the, it's, but it's up to you as the founder and right. you're the one that gets yourself to those doors and, mm-hmm. and nobody else. And by the way, we as black people deserve to have our businesses level up and, and we mm-hmm. deserve room mm-hmm. in those C-suites and we deserve room on those shelves and at those tables and in those conversations. And, and mm-hmm. there should be many, many more black owned, black female born and owned businesses in the halls of these large beauty conglomerates because we're a good bet. 
I attended a business thing years ago. It's over 10 years now. And it was sponsored by the Small Business Administration of Small Southern mm-hmm. Town. And the audience was uh, mostly African-American. And the other person who was on the panel was a young man who had invented a shoe. So he had been a UPS driver who had to wear the regulation Timberland, whatever, you know, they they tell the guys to go by. And he needed something that was more comfortable. You know, I don't know if it was Timberland. I don't want to trash their name, but whatever boot they were required to wear, Mm -hmm, it mm -hmm. wasn't ergonomically what it should be. Mm-hmm. And he fashioned his own shoe, but made the exterior look like everyone else's. So he never looked like he was out of uniform, but he was more comfortable. And then he would make some for some of his friends and it just grew. And he had this shoe company and he was going to China and having his shoes manufactured there. And he was talking about his journey And someone in the audience asked him if you were approached by a company like Nike, you know, to to work with them or to sell your brand, what would you do? And he said, I would never sell it because this is my passion and it's my baby and blah, blah, blah. And the audience just clapped and people like stood up for him. And the moderator was like, yes, my brother, that's right. You don't want to be a sellout. And I'm sitting there, I'm like, if Nike calls you, you better answer that <laughs> Exactly. I was like, so who? Who actually stepped in and said, no, 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 we're right, okay. Right, right, <laughs> And, you know, people did not like my response, but I was just like, you know, you could take that call from Nike because right. you have this shoe and then you can make more. It's just about negotiating your contract that allows mm-hmm. you to stay in that industry and keep creating. Right. It's not all or nothing. I said, but- right. Please, if Nike calls you, answer the phone call, take a meeting, talk with your lawyer about it. Right, right. I won't sell out stuff. That's yeah. Not- and it's so silly because, you know, financial parity is why systemic racism exists, right? Until we can find a way to level the playing field and bring wealth to black and brown communities, we're not going to be able to alleviate systemic racism. So yep. if Nike calls you and you get that opportunity, to build mm-hmm. generational wealth and bring it back into the communities and create jobs and bring other people to your big shoe company and then create other shoe right. companies and inspire the next shoe developer or designer in the community. That's how we're going to stop watching people die in the streets because yeah. then we're going to have a level playing field and you're not going to be able to mess with us because we're going to be equal. But in order to do that, there's no such thing as selling out. It's being able to lessen the gap yeah. so that we it's literally life or death. And so, yeah, I'm glad you were on that panel with him. I hope <laughs> Nike called. And I'm looking at the audience like, are y'all crazy? <laughs> <laughs> so true. It's so true. It's so true. It's like we have to show up better for each other too, right? We got we to gotta encourage each other to reach for the stars and because we deserve it, right? And And it's not even in just business situations. It's in, you know, mental health situations, right? Like when we see one of our brothers or sisters that are, that are hurting, that needs help and needs the tools to be able to settle their mind. And, and, you know, we can't be like encouraging them to continue on a path where Mm -hmm. they're not making sense or they're, they're ill and not well. And, and, and I, and I understand that need for camaraderie and like, we have your back no matter what, but sometimes having each other's back is encouraging each other to to reach for things that may seem impossible to better the community and, and serve the collective. So, mm. yeah, but it's also what you said earlier. It's like we, what you see you do. And so many of us are just seeing it for the first time. So yep. we're experiencing it and, and showing others. So when I had care for the 25th anniversary celebration of the brand, we held it at the Smithsonian um, Museum of African-American History and I put together a program and one of the things that I talked about, but it was, it was also like the, the lesson that I learned in being in business is when you're the leader, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're the best. It doesn't mean that you make the most money, that you're the number one in sales. You might not even be number 12 in sales because the responsibility of the leader is the first one through the door. 
the one that holds it open for others to come in, the advocate, the voice. And, and in the case of, of black and brown people and women in particular, we don't get that many chances so if we screw up, we screw up for like all of the people that are behind us. So it's also a lot of pressure as you're going through that front door. And then everybody who's behind you and who's behind them and who's behind them, they're all supposed to be getting better at it. And their job is to succeed and supersede you. So just because you're the leader you doesn't mean that you're the best and it doesn't mean that you're number one. You just have the work of getting that door open and keeping it open as long as possible. So when other, you know, like when people say to me, what do you think about all of these brands that are out there? And, you know, people who compete with you, people who copied you, et cetera. It's like, I can't even worry about it. Cause that was my job. I know people say that to me too. Like, wait, so you're a skincare founder and you started a business where you're a retailer selling products and things that people do just like you. I was like, yeah, that's, that's yeah. my purpose. Right. Or, or when people will say to me, well, what are, what are you going to do when you, when you build these brands and then they run off and they sell to these bigger beauty retailers, like how's that going to affect, you know, 13 loon in your business? I'm like, I, I want them to go sell. Yeah. I, I, I'm using yeah. this as an accelerator, a launch pad. Like I want to make sure that we, amplify and celebrate and tell the world about them so that these retailers do come knocking. That's my job, right? That's, that's why I, I did what I did and I've been doing what I've done for 19 years. And of course I'm going to have a retailer that sells products by people doing exactly what I do because I'm going to help them get to success quicker. Shouldn't have taken me 19 years to get to target. Right. Mm. Like they Mm. should get there really, really quick. Hopefully by my example and my, my mistakes and my wins and, and all of that, that I, I can help to target in year 22 wow. and Mayel went into target in year three or four. Yeah. I can't be mad yeah. about that. No, no. Why does she why? have to, why does she have to suffer? Right. I hear you. Well, I'm so grateful for you because you showed me I could do it. So I'm testing <laughs> number one. <laughs> and there'll be somebody behind Mayel that maybe does it in eight months. They might mm-hmm. right. launch first time right. in Target. Right. It's supposed to get easier. No, That's why my, my 15 year old daughter wants to start a hair care brand. And I was like, okay, let me call some friends and see if they'll yeah. mentor you. And, and yeah, she, she could very well be a 16 year old with a hair care brand, at a major retailer. And thank God, yeah. you know, thank God. That's the point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's so important to keep focused on that. And that's only going to create, it's going to strengthen the leaders of today. It's going to create the next generation of leaders and it's going to, it's going to evolve and iterate and it'll, it will become not just easier, but just a more beautiful, robust landscape, you know, not just mm-hmm. about the process, but what's, what's there. So right. thank you to both of you for <laughs> doing this. Um, Lisa, yeah. you do so much. You know, your life is so full. You've got Lisa's kitchen. I mean, not officially, but you you, you create still obviously so much for yourself and for your friends with such a busy life. You know, we talk about beauty. Beauty is all about putting things on, but we want to know how do you take it all off? What, what does it look like for you in your self-care day or journey when you unwind and just take it all off? I'm sure scent is involved. Yes, <laughs> yes. I am a huge bath person, even if my bath is like five minutes. Um, a week does not go by that I'm not in the tub at least once. Sometimes wow. it's more than that. During quarantine, I took a lot of baths. It just helped to settle my mind and to keep me calm. But I, I love the ritual of a bath. I love tea. There's something about making tea that one will remind me of my grandmother and my mother. I remember my grandmother making teas with traditional Lipton tea bags, but then also making teas with orange peel that she had hanging in the window that she would, you know, peel an orange and then put the skin by the window and let it dry and then break it up and make tea with it. And she said it settled her stomach Um, She made tea with ginger. She made tea with mint that grew in her backyard. And then with my mother, the act of making tea was a way to relax. 
So I would call her and I would be anxious about something with the business and confused. And she would say, do me a favor, just stop what you're doing. Go make yourself a cup of tea and then call me back. And it wasn't until my mother passed away and I had to like do this for myself that I realized when she told me to stop what I was doing and go make a cup of tea, it requires that you slow down because you really can't make a cup of tea fast. You have to be careful. There's boiling water involved. You know, um, if you're using a tea bag or tea leaves or something, you might have to strain like you just you have to pay attention and you have to be present in the moment. So when I would stop and make the cup of tea and then call her, I was automatically calmer because I had to stop and make the cup of tea. So I try to take those moments where I just stop and be present doesn't always work. It's not always available to me. And to be transparent right now, I'm going through a very stressful period with juggling, caring for a family member, my family and work. So I'm looking to see what I can edit a bit just to make things a little bit more simple because I'm past the point of, oh, I just have to manage my time better. I just have to work harder. No, I have to work smarter. And if I can take something off of my plate for three months so that I can better focus on the things I can't take off my plate, then that's not being weak. That's not being wimpy. That's just being smart. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, I'm working on what I need to edit so that I can work smarter. Mm-hmm. But it, you have to be present in order to make those decisions. If you stay in the swirl, right. you're just swirl. Like, uh, right. got to yeah. stop. That's such good advice the edit. <laughs> I'm like, what can I edit today? <laughs> my life be smarter with my dad. So one of our favorite ways that we love to end our podcast conversations is by asking all of our guests the same question, mm-hmm. which is Lisa, what makes you hopeful? Even though it seems like every time you turn on the news or open up your phone, you're seeing something that pisses you off and or you're hearing someone be very vocal and public about things that used to be more private. So even though that's distressing, I think it's better when it's out in the open than when it's hidden. And there's a lot of things that used to be hidden that are not hidden anymore. Mm -hmm. And when George Floyd died, and everyone else who died before him and after him, but specifically when he died. He died at a time when all of us were still and quiet and forced to be at home and in some ways forced to watch. Mm -hmm. And then we had conversations with each other that actually never happened before. I have never in the almost 59 years that I have been on this planet, I have never had white friends call me and say, I don't understand what's happening. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to help. I don't know why this is like this. Is this really this bad? And I would just be like, what in the, who, hello? (laughs) You know, and I just, one person, multiple people calling, having that conversation. And what I found that I feel is super critical And what makes me hopeful is people having those conversations in the people in my circle anyway, those white people realized that the thing that they thought was the problem, they thought was small and isolated to specific communities. So while they didn't agree with the police behavior, the assumption was, well, that behavior only happens in these marginalized communities where there's so much crime going on. And, you know, it doesn't happen to my friend that, you know, we we went to Harvard together and she lives in Connecticut and her and her husband have this and have that. And their kids go to this school and that school. They don't stop her son. No, yeah, they do. (laughs) They do. (laughs) And we're having the same conversation with our children that these other people are having. And they did not know that. And now they know that. Yeah. And now that conversation is continuing. And I'm hopeful that the next generation is a different thing because it can't be hidden anymore. It's not a secret. 
It's not a secret. Melissa and I talk about this a lot, you know, a black woman and an, a woman that's part of the AAPI community declaring ourselves beauty vanguards, even in our, in our industry, right, to to be so forward facing, not only speaking about beauty, but speaking about these issues. And like we spoke about, I guess, earlier in the conversation, it's like it's not it, it, there's no going backwards. The train has left the station. Mm-hmm. We have all been called to lean in, to be vulnerable, to be angry, to express. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and to have conversations that I never had with any of my white friends before that I've had many conversations over the past year and also having hope that this next generation, you know, I see the way that my daughter and her friends communicate about this. And, you know, I have a lot of faith in this next generation that that we will see some uh, significant change. They're not going to tolerate what I think that we stayed silent and tolerated most of our adult life just can't you can and the fact that it happened with quarantine and covid mm-hmm. it it made it even more impactful because mm-hmm. right. we were all in this you know, well maybe not all but i know in new york it was bad it was and, bad here too in la know, yeah afraid like literally afraid of going outside because you don't want to die mm-hmm. and you, every 10 minutes you could hear ambulance sirens and things like that so it's like somebody said it joking, but it was how they were managing their anger. And she said, even in a panoramic, like we can't die, you know, like being silly with panoramic. But, you know, why, why did it why did we have to kill us? And it's like all of this other crap is going on and y'all still got to kill people like. come mm-hmm, on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you're, mm-hmm. you're at the point where it's like, no. I'm not living like this anymore. I'm not having that conversation with children anymore. I'm not telling them to not speak up for them. Like we're not doing it. They are children. Right. Don't talk to me about an 18 year old male. It's an 18 year old child. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But the impetus is, I mean, it's, it's the responsibility or or the obligate, any of it, none of it rests on any one community, not the African-American community. And what you said, we were all forced to sit, it exacerbated, you know, this, this murder that happened in front of all of us, or, or that we were all, you know, able to access and, and watch sadly, it did. It, br- it brought up so many things that finally a lot of people started paying attention in a real way, not because mm-hmm. it's February, not because it's a list to your point, Nikeo. Like those one offs are not always performative. I don't want to say that, but like it requires an entire sea change and, and participation on everyone. Mm-hmm. It, it's on all of us obviously. So people are saying it about the AAPI community too, like that we're complicit in not speaking up. That is true in some ways, but there's a lot of times we're screaming, right? Or or in in more recent months, especially or in the past year, and it's still sort of falling on deaf ears. So yes, we can all speak up about our collective experiences um, and frustrations, but it really takes everybody of all communities, of all colors, Mm -hmm to participate, not just listen and activate. Like really that word is like, you know, I was talking to somebody, I said, oh, you've become such an act, you know, your, your activism is amazing. And he's like, Melissa, I'm not an activist. He's a fashion designer, but he's been very, very vocal um, on behalf of a lot of social justice issues. And he said, I'm not an activist. I'm activated. That's why I do everything. Mm. And I think that that's a good thing you know, I've kind of been mo- saying that as a mantra in my head, what activates me, right? Mm-hmm. So if you're hearing all these things and to your point, Leah, say you're seeing all these news headlines come across your phone or or Instagram or, or your TV, we all have a heartbreak. There's that heartbreak and your heart's kind of on the floor, but it's like, how now do I activate from mm-hmm. that? That mm-hmm. next feeling or that next thing you do, whether it's you're donating, whether you're having a hard conversation with a friend, neighbor, or, or family member, you know, it's just about activating to create progress. And like as allies, other communities, white people, Asian people, like as, as allies, like it's like asking yourself, like what makes me feel activated? And how do I sort of act on that? 
So yeah, it is hopeful though, in those moments yeah. for sure. We say at 13 Loon a lot through all the process of um, building a new business, onboarding new brands, raising money. We're not trying to break down an old paradigm. We're just trying to create a new one. And growth is hard. It hurts to grow. Your bones mm-hmm. hurt, your muscles hurt, you're tired, but we're growing. And that in itself gives us hope. And it's it's just beautiful and wonderful that we get to grow with you. And we're so grateful that we had you here today with us. And I was so, so excited grateful. for our listeners and all the wisdom that you shared with them, with our founders. And we can't wait to have you back. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pretty busy day today, but this is a nice way to stop in the middle of the afternoon and and have a good conversation and feel like you're doing something positive and not just checking something off the list. Absolutely. Thank you so much for being here with us today. You can follow Lisa at I am Lisa Price and at Carol's Daughter. We loved our time with you. Thank you so much. The Beauty Vanguard is a 13 Loon media podcast and a production of Embassy Row. Our executive producer is Sarni Rogers. This episode was produced by Alexa Machia and Anne-Marie Johnson. The show was edited by Maureen Vegas and Charlotte Council. You can follow us on Instagram at at 13loon and at Melissa Magsaysay and at Nikeo.